Uh, Pastor Keith is still downstairs uh, teaching our institute class, uh, and that's going to run another uh, three weeks, I think, after this morning. Uh, so it, it's not too late. I mean, it's late, but it's not too late that you can end up joining that at the 9 o'clock hour downstairs in Fellowship Hall North. And while he's been teaching that, we've had guest speakers, really, uh, January, February, and now into March. And so I want to invite up uh, Dr. Jim Hoffmeyer. Um, fun fact, if you kids loved the idea of having uh, a summer VBS where we do archaeological dig stuff, uh, may I introduce to you the only archaeologist that I actually know. Uh, participating in digs throughout the uh, Near East and focusing maybe Egypt and did I hear that you have an upcoming dig in Sudan? Lord willing. Lord willing, okay. Uh, and so maybe if you're interested in not just VBS in the future but uh, wanting to be someone who studies the scriptures and see how it's not just uh, myth but reality, history, um, this morning might be a benefit to you. So I want to pray for Dr. Okay. Hoffmeyer. Father, we lift you up and praise you for your word, that you have preserved it over millennia, um, brought it to our country in a language that we can read. Lord, we want to read it in a way that would help us to hear from you. And so I ask for your blessing on uh, Dr. Hoffmeyer, that he would um, be able to speak your words in a way that uh, your spirit would ride upon and open our eyes and ears and hearts to receive. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Yeah, I remember speaking of being an archaeologist some years ago when I was at Wheaton College, my first 20 years of college teaching, and we had one of those weekends where prospective students come to campus and visit, and they get the chance to meet professors in different departments where they might like to study. And so I was at one of these receptions, and one of the campus guidance counselors came up with this very bubbly 17-year-old uh, student. Uh, I think it was a he now as I think about it. And, uh, and you know, the, the counselor says, Johnny here is interested in studying archaeology. And I said, well, you know, there's no future in it. And his mom slapped him on the back and said, that's what I've been telling you. <laughs> anyway, well, how many of you, okay, are we interested in football here? I was surprised to find out that yesterday, FCS college football is actually on now. You don't have to wait till September. Did you know that? I guess all the teams that didn't play uh, last fall are now playing. Anyway, weird. That's COVID weird. But anyway... I'm at risk here of being stoned. But I'll take the chance because it's a great illustration. Would you football enthusiasts agree that Tom Brady is a goat? The greatest of all time. Do we have any naysayers? Okay, I know we have some old Eagle fans. Now, Norm Sneed, way back in the day, was no. You don't, some of you don't even remember that name. But anyway, old, fo old folks do. But anyway, Tom Brady, let's, let's think about this. Can you imagine next season, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are playing, and they go through their season, 
They're 14 and 2. Great season, couple losses, and now they're about to enter the Super Bowl, and Tom Brady is there now with the possibility of winning his eighth Super Bowl ring. But something happens, and Tom Brady can't play. Can you imagine what it's like to be his backup, who hasn't played all year, or only minimally, and all of a sudden he's thrust into the limelight, and he is going to be the guy you hope will get you to the Super Bowl and win that trophy? Can you imagine the pep talk the coach is going to give? to that backup quarterback and to the team as they're about to start the Super Bowl game without their leader who has all those wins and all that experience. Friends, that's exactly where we are at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Moses, who led the people out of Egypt through the promised land, to the promised land, has now come to the point just about to enter and cross the Jordan River and God takes him. What we have in Joshua chapter 1 is the equivalent of the coach's pep talk to get those players and their quarterback, their new leader, ready for the Super Bowl, entering the promised land. Let's take a look at Joshua chapter 1, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 9, because here is that pep talk. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving you to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give it to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness of this and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to give to your fathers." Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then 
you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, help us to be sensitive to your word, to the work of your spirit in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the example we have here with Joshua and your words to him. And Lord, we today want to receive them as your words to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to focus today on the heart of the pep talk. And the heart of the pep talk is wrapped up in the passage from chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 7, or actually verse 6 through 9. Now, notice here that there are three times where God says, be strong and courageous. And I've highlighted them in red. Now, you all know that when somebody gives an order, you t pay attention. In, in this case, God is giving the order, and the verbs here are all imperatives. So these are not suggestions. These are not, well, if you would like to do this, this is something you ought to consider doing. He is commanding them and using imperatives. Now, in, in Hebrew thought, often we, th we see things occurring in pairs, in twos, where something is said, then a short time later it's repeated. And the reason for repeating that is to say, I really meant what I said in the previous line. It's a way of reinforcing what is said. Now notice in this passage we have it three times. Three times God uses the word, be strong and courageous. Now, let me give an example. We say God is holy. That's pretty good. We refer to the most holy place in the temple as the holy of holies. That's a way of expressing the superlative, the most holy place. When we get to Isaiah chapter 6, we read what? Holy, holy, holy. Three times. Holy, holy, holy. So three times is like a super superlative. It doesn't get any more important. Okay? So what we're reading here then is really, really important. This is part of that pep talk. He is trying to inspire the team. And in this case, it's leader, it's quarterback. Be courageous. Be strong. The second thing I want you to notice about this passage is that the first and the third occurrences are saying the exact same thing, be strong and courageous. It's the second one where we have something different. And what it says is only be strong and very courageous. In a sense, the two the first and the third are pointing to the middle one as this is the really most important thing. What follows this command is the heart of the head coach's 
prompting to his team and to his quarterback. So, only be strong and very courageous. The word strong here, uh, as a teacher, I like people to realize that they really know much more Hebrew than they realize they do. Amen? Okay. Hezekiah, the great king of Israel, his name Hazak is our word strong. Hezekiah means Yahweh, God the Lord, is strong. That's our word here, Hazak. Then the word for courageous is Amatz, Amatz. And again, there's a Hebrew word you know. You don't realize you know it, but you do. The king Amaziah or the priest Amaziah in Amos chapter 7 who gave Amos a hard time, his name is Yahweh is resolute or a synonym of strong, some sort of sense of strong. So here we have then two words reinforcing each other. Be strong and resolute. We're going to dip into that a lot more deeply here in a moment. Now, I know some of you are sitting back and saying, good, he's speaking to the pastors. He's speaking to the Sunday school teachers. He's speaking to those who are ministry leaders. But I can sit back here quietly and duck this one. Uh Uh-uh. I would encourage any one of you who is planning on reading the book of Joshua in your quiet time or in your Bible study to go back and first read Deuteronomy chapter 31. Because Deuteronomy 31 helps set up what is going to happen in Joshua chapter 1. Now, in, in Joshua chapter, or Deuteronomy chapter 31, it begins by saying, and uh, I'm going to go over here and read because the lights shine in my eyes and I can't see the screen up there. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, in Joshua chapter, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 31, we start off with God saying, so Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, to the whole community of faith, God has something to say. And what is he saying? Go down to verse 6. It's a paragraph-long statement, then it sums it up in verse 6 with, be strong and courageous. Same two words. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So here, God is speaking to the people, not just Joshua. In other words, the whole team the taxi squad, the bench warmers. Everybody is a part of this team. Everybody's going to be a part of going into the promised land. Then, after he encourages the people and tells them to be strong and courageous or resolute, he then addresses Joshua. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of the people, be strong and courageous, etc., etc., So what is my point? 
the command to be strong and courageous and to do the things that God expects, and we'll talk about that in a moment, applies to the leader, that is Joshua, and it applies also to the people. So those of you who thought this message is not for you, according to Joshua 31, Deuteronomy 31, it is addressed to you. Be strong and be courageous. Now, I want to go back to the words, again, we were looking at, be strong and very courageous, because the reason it's emphasized is because of what follows, okay? So, in Hebrew, there's a great line here, and in Hebrew, this reads, rak chazak. Isn't that a great sound? Can you all say that? Rak Chazak. That wasn't too good. Rock Chazak. About 10 years ago, my son, who's a football coach uh, down in Texas, he's a high school head football coach, but 10 years ago, he was an assistant coach at Wheaton College. And that year, the team decided, or the co- head coach decided, that this would be their line Rock Chazak. And they use this verse from Joshua. And what was so cool is they were using this as all, sort of a cry when the team came out to the field, rock, chazak, rock, chazak. And I remember being at a game against Augustana College and uh, Peoria, Illinois, I believe it is where it is. And, um, you know, it was one of those fourth and one. And the Wheaton College team was trying to stop that one-yard surge to give a first down to Augustana. And all of a sudden, all the parents and the fans on the Wheaton side started shouting, rock, chazak, rock, chazak. And it was all very cool, but the people on the other side, they all said, what are they saying? But it was kind of cool. Fired up the team, gets them ready to play, rock, chazak. Now, what's key here is what follows. God is not just saying, look, I want you guys to be strong. I want you to be resolute. I want you to go, you know, hold that line, bash through the enemy lines and take the promised land. But look at what he is emphasizing. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law of Moses, my servant, what he commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. What he is saying here is they need to be very strong, very resolute in keeping God's commandments. Now, the Hebrew here is very interesting because it's two infinitives in a row. So what it says is, be careful, or that's how it's translated, is literally to keep, to do. In other words, the person says, I keep the commandments. doesn't mean I have them here in my pocket. You know, I have them in my wallet. I have them on my smartphone. That kind of keeping is... No big deal. Anybody can keep them, have them. But keeping them really means doing them. 
acting out in obedience to what God is commanding. And that really is uh, what's at stake here. How do we go about knowing what it is that God expects of us? It's very easy to say, obey the commandments. And it's a little harder for us, maybe, sitting here on this side of the cross to know how all that works. But let's first look at Joshua's case. God's encouragement is the way to know what God expects of you is by spending time in his word. This book of the law, God says, shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. What exactly does this mean? I know this is a verse many people have memorized. First of all, this book of the law, if one goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 31, which again, I'm reminding you, is very important in understanding the book of Joshua, but Deuteronomy 31, we read that this book of the law is what the book of Deuteronomy is called. So in Deuteronomy 31, we're told that Moses finished writing this book of the law to the very end. And then he says, take, and he's right telling the priest, take this book of the law and place it, it's a scroll, by that we use the word book, but it's really a scrolls. Take this scroll and place it alongside of the tablets of stone that God gave at Mount Sinai, which are in the Ark of the Covenant. So it goes along there with the other scripture. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is an interesting book because in a way, it's the capstone of the Torah, the five books of Moses. In a sense, it's the most important of the books because it's not just like the other four books or specifically from Exodus 20 on where we have God's commandments. Deuteronomy is two things. Number one, it contains the renewal of the covenant between God and Israel that Deuteronomy 31, again, specifies was to take place every seven years. The whole nation was to come together. They were to read the Torah or have it read to them. And they were to reaffirm their commitment to the covenant between God and themselves. So it is the renewal of the covenant. And this takes place just before the death of Moses. Secondly... If you go to Deuteronomy 1.5, we read, and Moses began to explain the law to the people. In other words, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' commentary on the laws that proceeded in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So it's a distillation of most of the laws, but it has Moses' commentary Moses' encouragement, Moses' warnings, 
all woven into the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy, if you wanted to know the heart of what the Old Testament law was about, focus on Deuteronomy. Now, the next thing uh, for us to realize about the book of Deuteronomy is that it also has a section that deals with what we would call the rules for the king. At this point in time, there was no king for Israel. Moses-type leadership was unique, and judges would follow, and then a couple hundred years later, we will have a king. So kingship was anticipated. In fact, you can go all the way back to God's promise to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17, and God says to Sarah, you will be the mother of kings. Kings are coming down the road, and they will be your descendants. But in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we have a whole section beginning in verse 14 and running down to verse 20 that are called the rules for kingship. Here are the things the king should do. Here are the king's things kings should not do. Now, I want to focus here on what it says starting in verse 18. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18. When he, this future king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. The king is supposed to sit there and write his own copy. He's not just downloading an app from the heavenly cloud. He is going to write out his own copy. Now, understand, writing and reading was a, a, a privilege that very few people had in ancient Israel. Very few people had. And so the king would have to make his own copy. It shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, by keeping, there's that word again, all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And moving down to verse 20, he shall not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left hand. And there's a very line we saw in Joshua chapter 1. So the book of Deuteronomy is what is referred to here as the book that should be on your mind or on your mouth. The point of our passage here and the stress that is laid on being courageous, being resolute, immovable, in doing, in obeying the law of the Lord is, is something that takes tremendous courage. And I think more than ever now in our cancel culture, which is becoming increasingly hostile towards the Bible, towards Christians, we in this country are beginning to experience the sort of thing that many of our brothers and sisters around the world have been facing for decades and even centuries. Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East for almost 1,900 years regularly have experienced persecution and suffering. We're beginning to get a little taste of that now, and more than ever, it is going to take courage 
we have to be resolute and absolutely, absolutely convinced of the truth of God's word for us to say yes to scripture, yes to God, and no to the developing mores of our time. I want to share with you a little video clip that really has inspired me, a young woman named Jaylene Henkel. I wanted to know everything and anything about the Lord. After a successful senior year, Jaylene was called up into nationals and began playing for the Women's Professional League. Then in 2017, she was invited to play for America in two international friendlies games. When you honestly take a second and like step back and almost have like that outer body experience of just, I'm being invited to play the game I love for my country. There's an emblem of the US flag on your chest. Like that's huge. Then days before the event, it was announced that the team Jersey was designed to honor the LGBT community. Jaylene again turned to God. I just felt so convicted in my spirit that it wasn't my job to wear this jersey. And I gave myself um, three days to just seek and pray and determine what he was asking of me to do in the situation. In the face of opposition and social media backlash, Jaylene withdrew from the games with the support of her teammates. I'm essentially giving up the, the one dream little girls dream about their entire life and I'm saying no to. It was very disappointing. And I think that's where the peace trumped the disappointment because I knew in my spirit I was doing the right thing. I knew that I was being obedient. And like, just because you're obedient doesn't make it easy. Today, she plays for the NC Courage of the National Women's Soccer League, where she boldly proclaims her faith and identity in Christ. I don't question his goodness. Like, I know he's good. I know he's faithful. And if I never get a national team call up again, like, that just is part of his plan, and that's okay. And maybe this was why you were meant to play soccer, just to show other believers, like, to be obedient. Uh, looks like we've gone back a couple slides, so if you can help get us where we should be. Yeah, I'm impressed with this young woman. Not only did she do the right thing, but she took three days to seek God, pray, study the scriptures. She wasn't making a knee-jerk response. She also said, I believe with every fiber of my body that what was written 2,000 years ago in the Bible is undoubtedly true. It's not a fictional book. It's not a pick and choose what you want to believe. You either believe it or you don't. This world may change, but Christ and his word never will. That is being courageous and resolute to do what Scripture teaches us. Now, let's take a look at what is involved in that process of staying resolute and focused on Scripture. I'm going to take a look, a deeper look here now at verse 8. 
and you see uh, several different translations up there, including the NIV first, which says, keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Keep this book always on your lips, meditate day and night. The NET, the NET Bible, New English Translation, this law scroll must not leave your lips. You must meditate, sorry, you must memorize it day and night so that you can carefully obey all, all that is written in it, not just the parts that are comfortable. And then there is the KRSV. Does everybody know what the KRSV is? That's the Keith Rohr Standard Version, also known as the NLT, the New Living Translation. This, uh, study this book of instruction continually, which is what day and night means. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. I think those three different translations do help us understand what, what, is, what is meant here. Because, you see, the word meditate in Hebrew is not something that we understand here in the West, which has been so much influenced by Eastern mysticism. So today, when people think of meditation, they think of yoga, they think of transcendental meditation, which was big in the 60s and 70s. You don't hear that so much anymore. But the idea is to open yourself up and to clear yourself of everything within and then be infilled with some mantra, some magical, mystical Hindu word, or to be focusing on yourself or, or, or something else. Uh, biblical idea of meditation is very different. Biblical meditation is focused on God. It's God-centered. Think of the psalmist in uh, Psalm 63 when he says, as he lays in his bed at night, I meditate on you. The Lord is the focus of his meditation. Secondly, our approach to meditation should be scripture-informed. Not just nebulous thoughts, but scripture should be the focus. And we can see this again and again in different places. Um, and uh, we'll see, uh, I'm going to quote a little bit later from Psalm 1, a very well-known verse, but we'll, we'll come back to that later. But we also focus in biblical meditation on what God has done, especially in creation and in salvation. Or think of Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens and the stars which you have made, what is man that you think about him? Or a main focus, especially of the Old Testament, is focus on the Exodus, how God saved Israel from Egypt. And you can see this again and again in the Psalms. Psalm 77, verse 11, I remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. 
Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And so it goes, the focusing on what God has done. And then he launches into a discussion of the Exodus. Psalm 78 is a complete focus on the Exodus, the plagues, the wonders God performed to save Israel and to bring them to their land. So biblical meditation is something we need to practice and it needs to be God-centered and we focus on what God has done and especially for us on this side of the cross, our focus is on what God did in and through Christ for our salvation. Now there's another dimension here that, that may strike us Westerners as odd and that was that this law that you meditate on is on your lips. Again, we think of meditation as a mental activity, but in ancient Israel, it was a verbal activity. You kept reciting, repeating. Now, I know we don't do that. We sit and read quietly. But if you go back even to medieval times, books were very rare. You know, even after all this, this book of the law, uh, Joshua and other leaders didn't have a copy of it. Well, when the kings came, they started making their own. But the point is, you didn't have a phone that you could just dial up Deuteronomy. So, so much of what was known of Scripture was heard and recited and repeated. And so that's why you keep it on your lips. You keep reciting it. And so meditation is that repetition. Now, I think there is value, and one of the things I've... I do from time to time is in my scripture reading, especially if, if I have the house to myself or my room to myself, is read out loud. Because it's one thing to see it, have the, those words enter my mind. It's another thing to hear it. It's another way. And think about the importance of the reading of scripture, reading aloud. One of the duties of a pastor was told to Timothy is the daily reading of the scriptures for the church. Not everybody, even the New Testament times, would have had the scriptures the way we do. All of that to say is we have no excuse. I counted yesterday 18 copies of the Bible in my office, my study, five of which were study Bibles. Bibles galore, Bibles on my phone. I got an ESV app. I've got a Hebrew Bible app. You know, it's so easy for us compared to the people of old who had to hear snippets of it and try to remember it and recite it and repeat it so they knew. And think about it. Only every seven years did they get together and hear the law read. Only in Jesus' day and maybe a century or two before did you start having synagogues so that in, in, in various communities the scriptures could be read daily to those who would go. But you didn't take, you didn't take the scroll of Isaiah home for you, you to use or the Torah you had to go and listen to it. So listening is a very important part. And I think this is something we've lost out on. I think it's something we ought to think more about, listening to those recordings of God's word. Okay, I'm not, there we go. All right. Let's move on. 
going back to our passage here, I wanted to now stress what the benefit is for us when we are courageous, when we are strong in to do, carry out, obey God's word. Notice the, the lines I have highlighted in blue here. Verse 7, do not turn from it to the right hand or the left that you may have good success wherever you go. And then down at the very end, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So twice we have reference to this is the way you have good success. This is how you prosper. Now, sadly, this passage is used by preachers of the prosperity gospel. Uh, however, if you look at the, the way these words are used throughout the Old Testament, rarely do they refer to material prosperity. This has been an unfortunate modern fabrication that if you obey God's word, you will drive a Rolls Royce. You will live in a million-dollar home. It doesn't work that way. So most of these uh, references in the Old Testament have to do with success in achieving God's plans and purposes for you. That's how it defines success. God wants to bring Joshua and the Israelites into the promised land. He wants to give them the land he's promised to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now he's going to bring them there. And their success, their ability to do this, is connected to their obedience to his word. Now, what this passage envisages is that we have in the biblical and well, especially Hebrew, but certainly in the New Testament, the idea that we are on a path. We are on a road, on a way. We, we read this word way and path again and again in the scriptures. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Scripture envisages a life that is characterized by being on a road, a road that goes somewhere. So when he says everywhere you go, you'll have success, the word go is walk. Everywhere you walk on that road. You're not to turn to the left or to the right, we read in Deuteronomy and in Joshua 1. You've got to stay on that path. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Think of Psalm 1. Famously, uh, maybe a passage we all memorize. Blessed is the man who walks not. Okay, There's a way you're supposed to walk and the way you're not supposed to walk. How you live your life. Not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way, there's that word again, of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he, what? Meditates day and night. So Psalm 1 captures the essence of what uh, Joshua 1.8 is talking about. So my question for you today is which road are you on? Which road are you on? We read in Proverbs that there is a way that seems right to a person, 
but the ways thereof is a way of destruction. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is from Jeremiah chapter 6, where we are told, and this is the Lord speaking, stand at the crossroads, that's the translation, but it's really roads, there are roads out there, and consider and ask, where are the old paths? Ask, where is the road that leads to blessing and follow it? If you do, you will find rest for your soul. So the Bible presents us with roads, with, with options. And Jeremiah, is, or God is saying in Jeremiah, through the prophet, look for the old path. I figured out why that's an important idea. Back in the 1990s, I was investigating doing archaeological work in Sinai, North Sinai. And I was driving with my driver, and I saw these yellow signs with black writing on. Now, I can read Arabic, and I read, but I didn't recognize the word. So I said to the driver, what's that sign say? What's a gham? Landmines. Okay, we don't want to go there. When we started working in North Sinai, I was very careful from that moment on to look for an old, worn path because I knew it was safe. The old worn path, you can see it's beaten down. There are footprints, maybe even prints from sheep and goats and cows with, that, that go through the area with the Bedouin, the desert people. Or there may be stones placed along the border to separate the road from the open desert. That all became more meaningful to me one year when we were doing a topographic map survey of our site. And one of my surveyors, Dr. Tom Davis, a fellow archeologist, was carrying the rod and he kept moving back and the surveyor was telling him to go back, go back and take readings. And at one point he looked down and he was standing on a landmine. It was a big one. And he said, I could see the Hebrew writing. So he knew it was an Israeli landmine from the 1967 war. He said, I prayed and I dove and thankfully it didn't go off. That's why you stay on the marked road. And what scripture is telling us is that the God himself has prepared a road a path for us. There's a general path for all believers, but a particular path for everyone. And following that path towards the good is how you find rest for your souls. Jesus also talked about these two ways and two gates that you enter the way. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Notice the, the biblical idea, just like our modern, well, idea, is that roads are named after their destination. The old Philadelphia Pike, right? Baltimore Pike, New Holland Pike. 
destruction pike. You don't want to be on that road. You want to be on the road that leads to life and blessing and rest for your souls. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And few find it. And we know that Jesus very clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and I am that path that leads to God. And if you don't come my way, you, there's no alternative. There is the way that leads to destruction. There is a way that seems right. And so today, you need to think about which road I'm on, which direction I'm going. Now let's wrap up with some takeaway points. First of all, to leaders and believers in general, all of us, be strong and courageous in your life's calling. Stay focused on God's word. That's the key, Deuteronomy 1.8. Be faithful to obey God's word. And this, of course, is the key. To be doers of the word, not hearers only. There's that idea of hearing again. It's not just reading, but hearing. I love this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It has stirred in my heart for close to 50 years now that I've, since I read it in Cost of Discipleship. Only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. You say you believe in Christ, but you don't obey his commandments. You don't love him. If you are on the road that leads to eternal, uh, road that leads to eternal life, great. If you're not on that road, you have to turn to Christ, who is the way. So, where are you? How are you doing on that road? Hopefully you're following the way of obedience, following the way that leads to life so that you can find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us a path, a path that we can cross through the dangers of life, a path, a way that leads to life, not destruction, that leads to eternity with you instead of eternity without you. Lord, we thank you. Thank you so much that in Christ you made this way very clear. Give us the courage to be faithful and obedient to follow your word, knowing that you are with us wherever we walk, wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.